Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We'll pick up our story in chapter 14. Chapter 14 of the Gospel of Mark. If you've just joined us uh, this morning, we've been moving through this book for the past several months. And with the exception of last week's prophecies, what we've seen as the theme of the last several passages is the increased threats of the religious leaders towards Jesus. They've tried to get the crowds to turn on him. They want to see him arrested and imprisoned. They've set various traps. And yet so far, nothing has worked. Jesus has shut them down. And now their animosity is moving beyond mere verbal threats. Now they're trying to kill him. Let's read from chapter 14, verse 1, on down through verse 11. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, that wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Well, then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Well, today we're going to see three things in this particular passage. First, we'll see a wicked deception. Second, we'll see extravagant devotion. And then finally, third, we'll see a lavish sacrifice. So a wicked deception, extravagant devotion, and then a lavish sacrifice. So first, we see the wicked deception. Now, this description of the plot to kill Jesus, it just oozes with intrigue, doesn't it? It's Wednesday night of Passover week. Now, remember that the population, it just swells. It multiplies during Passover week. What's normally 50,000 people would multiply to 200 to 250,000 people during this week. So the threat of uprisings, the threat of riots has increased. So the leaders want to arrest Jesus, but they're planning on waiting until after the festival. They want to do it quietly. They want to do it in some secret way as to not cause a riot. So they begin planning how to do that. They wanted to end all this. They're thinking to themselves, if we can just get rid of Jesus, 
then things could go back to the way they used to be. You know, when our business was good, when we would sell sacrifice after sacrifice, when the temple was buzzing with pilgrims. Maybe we can save this thing that we had. Let's just get rid of Jesus, but let's do it quietly, lest a riot break loose because Jesus was starting to gather a bit of a following. So they waited. But to their delight, Judas, on his own initiative, came and offered his help. Now, why did he come? Was it for political reasons? Was he just tired of Jesus and this kingdom was never coming? Was it money? Well, according to Matthew 26, in the same story, it seems that greed was a chief motivator. Judas was a thief. He was a lover of money. And yet, you see that what Mark concentrates on in verse 10, it's a little reminder for the reader. He reminds us, that Judas was one of the twelve. Now, why does he do that? We know he's one of the twelve, right? We, we don't have a short memory. We read his name on the lists in Mark and in, in the other Gospels. We know Judas Iscariot is one of the twelve disciples. We, we know that. We remember that. But here, Mark says Judas, he was one of the twelve. I think Mark is warning us here that mere proximity to Jesus doesn't imply faithfulness. Mere proximity to Jesus doesn't mean that you're going to be faithful to him. No, in fact, Matthew's gospel tells us that he sold out Jesus for a mere 30 shekels of silver. Now, this is fascinating because 30 shekels of silver was the minimum price to purchase the lowest of slaves. It was the lowest possible price in this day to purchase a man. So according to Judas, he was willing to receive the lowest price for the lowest man in order to sell out Jesus. Think about it. This is what Judas thought the life of Jesus was worth. And for him, Jesus was worth more dead than alive. And this text is terrifying. And the fact that it's possible to be so close to Jesus, to be familiar with him and still be a double-minded man. Is this not sad? I mean, Judas spent 24 7, 24 hours a day, seven days a week with Jesus for three years. And he turns out like this the most heinous crime committed by man with the greatest privilege and opportunity that anyone could have. Walking and talking with the living God every day, living in his glorious and pure presence, experiencing his truth and beauty and power and wisdom and fellowship. Now, friend, this morning as we sit here in this room, this should cause each of us to check our own lives. Judas was continually in the vicinity of Jesus, and yet he did not have fellowship with him. Now, Judas wasn't arm-wrestled into following Jesus. No, he left his job like the other disciples, but still something was missing. 
Judas obviously did not follow Jesus, even though he, quote, followed Jesus. Now, Judas was holding back from becoming a true disciple. He pilfered funds on the side. He stole from the money box. He was the treasurer for the disciples, and yet he kept back big portions of it for himself. He worshipped money, not Jesus. Well, friend, maybe there are things in your life that you think no one knows about. Maybe none of us do. Maybe you spend time in church doing church things to assuage a guilty conscience. But you can be assured of at least one thing this morning, and that's that Jesus knows. He knows that the Last Supper, he points out in front of everyone that Judas was the one who was about to betray him. He knew Judas's heart. He knows each and every one of our hearts this morning. He knows our secrets. He knows what double lives we are living and hiding. But see, when we betray Jesus, we never get enough in our return for our betrayal. It never turns out to be a good deal. Judas got 30 shekels of silver. It's not much. It's actually a terrible deal. It was a little bit of money. It was four months' wage for a working person. But not much in exchange for selling your soul. But that's what we do when we sell out Jesus for one night of illicit sex or for a good reputation at work or for the approval of our fellow students. You sell out Jesus. When you do that, you sell out Jesus for far less than 30 shekels of silver. Friend, be confronted with the double-minded life of Judas today. Know that being close to Jesus, it's not enough. Being involved with church, knowing church leaders, serving in ministry in the church doesn't fix your heart. It doesn't. It can't. Being here this morning at this gathering doesn't forgive you of your sins. Being in a church gathering doesn't make you a Christian. Now remember this double life of Judas when you start your next internet search or attempted to lay your hand in anger or raise your voice towards your spouse, or you're tempted to perform a shady business deal or a compromising situation in the classroom. Now ask yourself, is there something in my life that I'd rather have than Jesus? Is there something more important to you than him? For what would you betray Jesus in order to have? The great British pastor Charles Spurgeon once said, A smile from the world has been a bribe sufficient to seduce men. Just a smile from the world has been a bribe sufficient to seduce men. Don't be seduced by this world. Don't trade him in for prosperity, prestige, or a promotion. No, be consumed with something greater. And we see an example of this right in our passage. We've seen this wicked deception of Judas, but we also have an example of extravagant devotion, don't we? That's the second point in our passage. It's an extravagant devotion. It's a wonderful display. 
We see as we do a simple reading of the passage that we have a classic Markan sandwich again with verses 1 through 2 and 10 through 11 about the betrayal of Jesus. And then this story of extravagant devotion nestled neatly between in verses 3 through 9. Now the betrayal story is on Wednesday evening, right on the cusp of Jesus being arrested and killed. But we know from the Gospel of John that this second story is actually a flashback that happened four days before on Saturday night. Now Mark is intentionally placing this story here in between the betrayal accounts to make an important point. In between the disturbing news takes place a party. Now, I don't know about you, but I love parties. I love parties. I love gathering with people. I love being with you and being with one another. And so we have a little inside glimpse here of a party that takes place on the night before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And Mark is inviting us into the party. And this party takes place in the home of Simon the leper. That should catch our attention. Here's a party, a big party in the home of Simon the leper. Now that catches our attention because if he still had leprosy, they couldn't have a party at his house. He'd be quarantined. He'd be isolated from everyone, away from his family, away from his friends, all alone, not able to receive any touch from anyone. And so somehow he was healed of this disease that had no cure. Perhaps he was healed by Jesus himself. Familiar with separation, familiar with the humiliation that takes place when you're a leper. You can imagine his facial expression as you arrive to his party. I mean, if you love parties, imagine how much Simon the leper loves parties. He gets to be with his friends. He gets to have them over to his house. And so Simon the leper greets you at the door and you enter in. Well, we see in John's account that we are informed of the guest list in a little more detail. We see that Lazarus is there. He's reclining at the table. Now, this is significant because he recently died. (laughs) I mean, imagine being created or invited and welcomed in at the door by Simon the leper. And then in the corner of your eye, across the room, is Lazarus, the recently raised from the dead Lazarus. I mean, how cool is that? I mean, you talk about a party. Well, I want to be at this party. I mean, are there times when you read the Bible that you go, wow, I wish I was there. I wish I could be at this event. Well, if I could be at this party, you know what I would do? I would grab a nice, delicious hummus appetizer in my hands. And then rather slyly, rather covertly, I'd ignore everyone in the party. And I'd walk over to that corner to talk to Lazarus. I'd want to have a little conversation with him. I'd love to say, hey, buddy, good to see you. What was it like when you died? (laughs) I mean, is, is it a bummer that you've got to go do it all over again? And man... Who broke the news to you that you had to go back? (laughs) I'd like to have heard that conversation. Lazarus, you're going back. That's got to be wild. I would have asked him, what's heaven like? How are Adam and Eve doing? They doing all right? (laughs) 
So many questions. I haven't even gotten to dinosaurs yet. What really happened to those guys? You know, the big ones. What did, what, what did they go? So we are invited into this party. Simon the leper is at the door. He greets us. Lazarus is there. We're told that Mary and Martha are there. The disciples would have been there. And perhaps a few others. It's quite a party, but... We all know that the guest of honor at this party is Jesus himself. It's Jesus, the Savior of the world. It's parties for him. He's about to ride in in the triumphal entry the very next morning. But during the dinner at this party, something surprising happens. An unnamed woman comes and anoints Jesus' head with a bottle of perfume. In John's Gospel, we see that this is Mary, Martha's sister, but probably intentionally, Mark leaves that detail off. He just wants us to see that here's this woman who comes to Jesus, and the guests are absolutely shocked. They're shocked because this wasn't just any old cheap bottle of perfume. It was estimated at 300 denarii. In the other passages, it says 300 denarii. That would have been a whole year's wage. This is significant as well because women, they, didn't, they weren't able to work jobs where they could save that significant portion of money. And so this nard, this well-known perfume, probably from India, was most likely a family heirloom. It was passed down from generation to generation to generation. It was family treasure. It had sentimental value as well as financial worth. It was an important bottle. And so the guests, they just scream out, what are you doing? Woman, are you crazy? What has gotten into you that you've just poured out this entire bottle of your priceless perfume? Now, why were they angry? It wasn't like it was their perfume. Well, it's because they thought it was a waste. It was valuable. It could have helped the poor. Just give them a little bit. Just pour a little bit. Just pour a few drops on Jesus. That's okay. But don't waste the whole thing. That's foolishness. Well, Jesus steps in in verse 6 and says, Leave her alone. Leave her alone. She has shown extravagant devotion. Much like the last woman we came across in this book. Do you remember her, the widow? The widow that Mac taught about? The one who threw in her last couple copper, copper coins. She gave her last couple copper coins away. It was worth maybe a few durhams, maybe 1% of a day's earnings. And Jesus says, she's a model of generosity. And here this lady pours out the equivalent of perhaps one or maybe 200,000 dirhams worth of perfume on the head of Jesus. And Jesus says, that's a model of generosity. That's a model of devotion. Two separate stories, two separate amounts. Now why? Well, because devotion is not measured by the gift It's not measured by the amount of the gift, but by the heart behind the gift. 
by the worship and devotion behind the gift. See, the extravagance of the woman here shows that she understands Jesus' infinite worth. And she gives it all. Jesus says, this is a beautiful thing. She has, in fact, prepared for my burial. See, she understands something that it appears others in the Gospel of Mark have missed. It's such a model of extravagant devotion that Jesus concludes in verse 9 with a pretty incredible promise. Did you catch that? Did it seem rather odd? I mean, he says in verse 9, I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospels preach throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I mean, we don't know exactly what she's thinking or what she's believing, but it appears that she's the first to understand that the gospel is to be realized through suffering, through the death of Jesus, that he's going to die and needs to be prepared for his burial. And she gets this amazing promise and that her actions will be remembered. Which is what we're doing this morning, right? This prophecy is being fulfilled. It's being rolled out right before our very eyes and ears. It's rolled out anytime the Bible passage here is read or taught. I mean, 2,000 years have gone by and the testimony of her adoring, selfless, sacrificial worship is a memorial to her and her faith. She's using all of her social security, this whole bottle as an act of devotion. Now, why does she do this? Well, she understood who Jesus was and his lavish sacrifice that would come later in the week. That's the third point. That's the motivation for our extravagant devotion. It's that there is a lavish sacrifice. The third point we see here this morning. Jesus says, not a waste to spend this on me. That's quite a shocking statement for anyone to say. This 200,000 Durham bottle of perfume that just got poured on me, it's not a waste. Can you imagine, just for sake of illustration, someone taking 200,000 Durhams out of a world hunger charity's bank account to buy you a watch? Then you were awarded this watch in a banquet of these folks that are hungry and need food. And you were awarded this watch filled with diamonds, filled with gold. I mean, it's a beautiful watch. You're delighted to hold something that's worth that much. But you might assume that those watching you receive this would think, well, something, something's just not right about that. And you yourself would feel a little awkward receiving it. You know Why? Well, it's because we know and you would know that that money would be better spent on someone else rather than you. But listen to what Jesus says in the passage. He's saying what she has done is what she could do, that the sacrifice is beautiful. He's saying it's worth it. He's saying I'm worth it. I'm going to die and she is preparing me for my burial. And he says this argument about the poor doesn't hold any weight because I'm more important than the poor. He places himself above the concern for the poor. Now, now this, this is hard to see coming from a mere mortal, isn't it? For any one of us to claim that we're more important than the poor. 
Now, caring for Jesus is important. It's more important. Why? Because love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength comes before what? Before the second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is claiming that he is more than a man, that he is greater than a man, that he is God in the flesh, worthy of all of our worship, worthy of all of our honor. Again, we're faced in the book of Mark with the question, who says these kind of things? Who does these kinds of things that Jesus does chapter after chapter? Well, turn back with me a few pages to Mark chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, just a few pages, just back to Mark chapter 1 in the very beginning of this gospel that we started a few months ago. Maybe for some of you it feels like a few years ago. We've been moving through the life and times of Jesus. And in the very first message, the very first week, we read the first eight or nine words of chapter 1. It says... The beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In the very first words of this narrative, we see that this has been about Jesus, this divine one, the very Son of God, the very Savior of the world. And so each passage, each week through Mark, we see that it is revealing that Jesus is greater than man. That Jesus is, in fact, God in the flesh. The one who would come to pour out his very life for us. We'll flip back, back to Mark 14. Go back a few pages over there. And as you look at this story, do you see how this story anticipates the sacrifice? I mean, this jar of perfume, this very jar that the woman would have had, would have likely had a long neck and perhaps a little plug at the top for which you could you know, pour drops of perfume when you're ready to smell nice and ready to uh, make your home smell nice. Well, instead of popping the seal and pouring a little bit on the head of Jesus, what does he do? What does she do? She breaks the bottle, perhaps breaking the neck, and she pours out the entire jar. Its entire contents are laid out on the head of Jesus. This jar of perfume could never have been used again. The offering was a complete one. She poured something of great value upon Jesus because she loved him. Well, just a few verses later, in verse 24 of chapter 14, it says that Jesus poured out his blood for us. He poured out something of inestimable value for us. He poured out the very blood of God. He emptied and poured out himself. Now here in this passage, the spotlight is not on the woman. It's not really on Lazarus. It's on Jesus the one who has given his life for us. He was broken. He was crushed. Why was he on the cross? Why did he die on the cross? Well, it was to satisfy the perfect justice of God. Because God is holy and righteous and just. God is perfectly holy. He is perfectly righteous. He is perfectly just. 
And yet every one of us was held hostage to the world by our sin. You chained yourself to the bottom of the ocean of your depravity, dead, no hope, no yearning for God. None of us wanted anything to do with him. You had sinned against a holy God. Now here's what this means. It means that God is perfect. He's perfect in every way. And he created you, every single one of you, to be in a relationship with him. Living under his loving and caring rule. And yet each of us, in our own sinful way, have rejected him. We have no hope of reconciliation because God is utterly holy. And in order to be consistent with this perfection, our sin must be punished. It must be punished in consistency with his holiness. There's no other way for a perfect God to accept sinful men and women back into his presence. There is no other way. And yet on a hill called Calvary, God sent, sacrificed, and crushed his only son, full of fury of his holiness, righteousness, and justice, all of it satisfied in his substitutionary sacrifice for those who would turn from their sin and turn to Jesus. See, when you turn to Jesus, in the mystery of his mercy, he looks down upon your helpless body, laying there, there, laying there on the ground, having rejected him. He accepts you. He breathes new life into you. He lifts you out of the pit of darkness, and he brings you to Jesus. Now, God sent us a Savior to save us from our greatest problem. See, if God thought our greatest need and problem was money, he would have sent us an accountant who could have told us how to make more money. If God thought our greatest need was, was comedy and entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian to make us laugh and feel good. If God thought our greatest need was a politician, then he would have sent us a senator or a president If he thought our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion and death. And so he sent us a savior. Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said, Either sin is with you, lying on your shoulders, or it is lying on Christ, the Lamb of God. If it is resting on Christ, then you are free. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't follow Jesus, we are so thankful you're here. We pray that you would keep coming to our gatherings. We love it when you're here. We love meeting with you. We love talking to you about Jesus. But I do want to tell you that until you embrace Christ, until you embrace Christ as your Savior, you are not free. You are still chained To your sin and eternal punishment awaits. So I'm concerned about your soul this morning. I'm concerned about you. Friend, believe in Jesus. Repent of your sin and turn to him. And he will take the sin from upon your shoulders and he will pour it upon Jesus. Our study here in the Gospel of Mark, it's shown us that this is the only way to be saved. We can't work our way to heaven. It's not by church attendance. It's not by doing good things. It's not by helping the poor. No, it's by repenting of our sin. It's by believing in this one who has come 
Friend, flee to the cross where the innocent one died in your place. Run to the place of salvation. Run to Calvary. And I pray that you would embrace him with faith today. I do. I pray that you would embrace him by faith in the same way that many others have here at our church uh, here recently in the previous days. But just last week, a woman came up to me after the service and she shared some good news with me. She was smiling as she approached me. She said that she had been coming to our gatherings for the past several weeks and I'd met her along the way. She has been making the long drive up here uh, to redeem or to hear the gospel. Going through a tough time, she was considering the claims of Jesus upon her life. And just last week, she came up to me with a big smile on her face, saying that she had repented of her sin, saying that she had believed in Jesus and had become a Christian. That she had turned to this king who had died for her. And just like the woman in our passage had seen the beauty of Jesus. Just a couple weeks before that, right up here in the front after the service, a young man came up to me and told me that he had been coming for a few months. He had been hearing the good news here in our Friday services. He had been reading his Bible and started to come to a small group. And he came up to me and said he realized along the way that he wasn't a Christian, that he had been running from Christ to pursue the things of the world, that he had been living in sin and he needed a Savior. And he came up to me to tell me that he had embraced Jesus that he had turned from his previous way of life, that he had become a Christian. And right as I was talking with him, it was a wonderful morning because two others came up to me, two other brand new believers, one whom we recently baptized and then the other who desperately wants to be baptized. And I stood there just in awe of God's work. I stood there and looked around at these men, realizing that we were men from four different continents. Four different continents, all saved by the blood of Jesus. Friend, this is why we exist as a church. It's to hold out the life-giving words of Jesus to you each Friday. It's to hold out this gospel each week. This is the very reason we exist as Redeemer Church of Dubai and why we started in February of 2010. It's so that we, by God's grace, would see disciples made. It's that by God's grace we'd see men and women converted by the work of the Spirit, that we'd see men and women become Christians and then grow in their faith. That's the goal of the church, see disciples made and to see them grow in Christ-likeness. That's our hope, that's our prayer, that's our goal, that's our philosophy of ministry, that's what drives us, seeing disciples made. And so we pray that in God's grace that would continue to happen here. And friend, if you've done that even today, or maybe recently you've become a follower of Jesus, please tell us. Tell someone you're with. Tell someone you're sitting next to. Tell me, please. Me and the elders would love to know. We'd love to celebrate new life in Christ with you. We'd love to talk about what that means to walk with God. We'd love to talk to you about what baptism means and the significance of publicly proclaiming your faith before all to see. And we'd love to share that good news with one another. Because it is unbelievably amazing when we could celebrate life change. There's no better news than Jesus and him bringing us to himself. For he is the son of God who gave his life as a ransom for the salvation of many. Well, fellow Christian, this isn't just good news that saves us. 
It isn't just news that saves us from eternal damnation. No, Jesus' death should have a profound effect on our lives. The problem of the disciples in the past is it wasn't their concern for the poor. No, taking care of the poor, that's a good thing. As Christians, we should strive for that. No, the problem was elevating the good of the poor above adoration for Jesus. This is an old problem. We see this all over the world today where social causes and concerns take priority over worshiping Jesus and ministry for Jesus. But you see that the disciples' problem was that they didn't get who Jesus was. That was at the core of their issue. If they had understood who Jesus was, they wouldn't have had a problem with the devotion of this lady. I wonder as you read through this passage, I wonder whose life in the passage your life most resembles. Is it the wickedness of Judas, this double-mindedness of the betrayer? Is it the indifference of these disciples or even the anger of these disciples? Or is it the adoration and worship of this woman who is willing to give up everything for Jesus? Are you breaking open the most valuable thing you have and pouring it all out for Jesus? That's what real disciples do. Now, how can you tell you're doing this? Well, first off, does it ever inconvenience you to be a Christian? Does your Christian faith ever inconvenience you? Does it ever cause you to make tough decisions where you have to give away things that maybe are near and dear to your heart, but you do it? Does your faith inconvenience you? Or are you hesitant to serve the Lord using the gifts He's given you? Your time, your energy, your money, your work. Are you embarrassed, scared, intimidated, or reluctant to be this devoted to Jesus? If so, what is standing between you and this extravagant devotion? I mean, can you name that thing or relationship this morning? Maybe something comes to your mind rather quickly. What is it that you value more than Jesus? Friend, if we're honest, I think we'd have to say that often we look a lot more like Judas than we do this woman. Now, if you don't see Jesus like this woman sees Jesus, you won't value him. Your love won't be extravagant. You won't be consumed with Jesus. If we're not reviewing and reflecting upon the gospel regularly, Jesus won't look great to us. Friend, are you remembering who he is and what he's done for you? See, when we forget the the gospel, we become dependent on the smiles and evaluations of others, don't we? So the woman did the thing that everyone hated. The group opposed her. When we forget Jesus and the gospel, we'll cave in. We'll save the perfume. We'll hold back. We'll give just a little bit of ourselves. We'll pour just a little bit of the perfume out, but we'll hold everything else back. We'll save most of it for ourselves. But friend, you can't worship halfway. You're either all in or you're not in at all. There's nothing in between. There's no half-hearted worship of Jesus. You're either worshiping the Lord God or you're not. Or you're worshiping yourself and living life your own way. It's only two choices. 
Now, when we're enthralled with the beauty of Jesus, when we see his death, that he poured out his blood for us, it causes us to be self-forgetful. It causes us to switch gears from focusing on ourselves to focusing on Christ. You view God for the beauty that he is. See, when we're devoted to Christ and love him, everything in our lives change. We'll desire to spend time with him. We'll give away our things for the good of others. We'll give money to orphans and to the poor. We'll start asking ourselves questions like, how do I share my home to show the world that Jesus is more important to me than my stuff? We'll ask ourselves, how do I pursue my career in such a way that shows the world that Jesus brings me more significance than my job? So maybe you turn down promotions. Maybe you take jobs not because of your career or money, but because you can worship God more fully, because you can love and care for your family better. When we are consumed with Jesus, we'll contemplate how to spend our money in such a way as to show our kids and our neighbors and the world that Jesus is more precious to us than our possessions. We'll start asking ourselves questions like, how do I use my singleness to show the world that Jesus is more important to me than getting married? We'll ask, how do I use my physical pain to show the world that Jesus is more valuable to me than good health? You know, a transformed life shows the world that Jesus is more valuable than anything. Psalm 63. Psalm 63 was read earlier for us by Butch, and it said that the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life itself. Friend, do you believe that today? Is the steadfast love of the Lord better than life? Because being loved by God and being brought into his presence is better than anything else. When we see and value Christ, when he is our treasure, then like the woman at the party, we will give up everything with excitement and with joy. Let's pray and ask for his help in this endeavor. Let's pray.